and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe, I'm with Martin Spain, and in this show we discuss cars and films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movie, TV and online. In this episode, we're looking outside of Hollywood for films in a foreign language. But first, Martin, you finally caught up with Ford versus Ferrari or Le Mans 66. What did you think? I loved it. And I think actually I'm going to go back on my prior hardline stance on the title. Um, Regular listeners will know that I was vehemently against Le Mans 66 as a title because I thought Ford versus Ferrari was a much better title. Um, We covered in the last episode as to why it's called Le Mans 66 Mm. in the UK versus Ford versus Ferrari everywhere else. But it's actually a better title because that is the culmination of the movie is the Le Mans 66 race. And Mm. this has got very little. And I think you mentioned this when we did your review Uh, a few shows ago this actually has very little to do with Ford versus Ferrari that is up and dealt with kind of in the first third of the movie and then you kind of forget about it Ferrari do feature there is your classically slicked back hair slightly snotty looking (laughs) Italian driving a red car down the Mulsan he's in it but you know, I, he does get a name. Yeah. I, I want to say Scarfiotti, but I could be just making that up. That could just be a type of pasta. <laughs> he, they're in it, but they are tangential to the story as far as I'm concerned. They're the catalyst, but they mm. are not the bad guys. Would you say that Ford versus Shelby would have been a better title? There's a degree of that, yes. I think um, Ford versus his old man and his expectations there's there's all sorts of things i really really enjoyed this movie and though i think christian bale has got some of the acting plaudits i actually enjoyed matt damon's carol shelby a lot more he gives it a warmth and a an understatedness that really helps to counterpoint the slightly crazed not Midlander, but the slightly crazed, slightly <laughs> jagged live wire performance you get from Bale. And and Matt Damon mm. is giving a movie star performance here. It's the kind of performance that you expect from someone from the golden era of Hollywood where they're just kind of they're not necessarily playing an, a super accurate representation of the character, but they're giving you the movie version of that character. And it played gangbusters for me i loved his character in this i think more than anything else i could quite happily have watched i don't know ford versus porsche ford versus um i don't know name another manufacturer from the late 60s early 70s and just have carol shelby in it all the time being awesome i really really enjoyed that and i really enjoyed the fact that this is a it's like a grown-up movie in an age where mm. every other movie is a sequel or a comic book property or a sequel to a comic book property. This was felt like old-fashioned, mid-budget thriller stroke movie for adults that you don't see very many of anymore because people aren't willing to take a risk on it. And I really, really enjoyed watching a film like that again. Since our last episode, both the nominations for the BAFTAs and the Oscars have come out. And Ford, well, I was going to say Ford versus Ferrari. I guess with BAFTA, they're calling it Le Mans 66. Anyway, what should we call it? Wait, what's I think we're going to call it, let's call it, uh, let's go with Ford versus Ferrari because that's kind of what we've gone on before. I think it's it's a bad title, but it's, you know, you can see why they had to do it. Um, it scored BAFTA nominations for cinematography, editing and sound, which is you know, pretty good, especially the cinematography. I thought the cinematography in this was beautiful, really Ooh. stunning. Uh, Oscar have chosen to ignore that cinematography, I think possibly in favour of some more flashy films. But 
surprisingly to me, this has been nominated for Best Picture, which is a huge deal. This is the first ever motorsport-themed movie to get a nomination for Best Picture. All the others, your Le Mans, your Grand Prix, your Rushes, your Senna's, all of them missed out. So this is a, a bit of a first. Um, they also nominated Ooh. it for Best Film Editing, which I can see, Best Sound Editing, which I'd say it's in with a strong chance of, and Best Sound Mixing, likewise, for a total of four nominations. There's some tough contenders. It is not going to win Best Picture. It is not within a it's no. just no way that they're going to go for that. It's up against Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Irishman, Parasite, 1917, Marriage Story, Ooh. Jojo Rabbit, Joker, which is going to win even though it's a big pile of crap, and Little Women, which should win, but won't because Joker's going to beat it. Oh, you think? Is it not going to be 1917? Not a picture? chance. I mean, re- wow. It's going to be Joker because they they like it. It's it's the anti-comic book movie, comic book movie. Although maybe it could be The Irishman, because that's, of course, cinema, according to Martin Scorsese, and anything <laughs> that isn't Martin Scorsese movies is not cinema. Screw you, Martin Scorsese. <laughs> according to Martin Scorsese. Yes. I think, like, like all of these kind of movies where it's a little bit niche and it's a little bit geeky, it's going to score in the technical categories. You know, much like Star Wars did back in 1977, it's going to get plaudits for things like best sound mixing, which I think it's in with a very good shout of. It's up against 1917, which is strong competition. Once Upon a Time, it's just going to be, um, you know, Quentin Tarantino's latest mixtape. No one gives a fuck about that. <laughs> Ad Astra is a good one. Joker is a big pile of crap. Um, best sound editing, pretty much the same things. Star Wars, The Rise of Lame Walker, Once Upon a Time in Quentin Tarantino's Ooh. Back Room. And yeah, it's got a good chance of that. <laughs> I'm really hopeful it wins something because it's really nice to see it being recognised. Mm. But uh, yeah, that's it's great news for this. And maybe there are other motorsport stories out there that get made or get some attention now with the success mm. of this. It's not been an enormous monetary success, but it didn't cost very much. I think it's brought in around the 200 million mark, maybe a little over globally, but it didn't cost much more than 40 million to make. So even if you double that to allow for distribution and marketing, it still made a big pile of money for the people that backed it. That's good. And I did notice uh, the other day when I was flicking around on Netflix, there is actually a documentary on there called Shelby American, The Life of Carol Shelby, which I really want to check out now because I don't know about you, but straight after the film, I started looking up all of these articles and bits of information about that campaign, about Le Mans 66, about Ken Miles and Carol Shelby and things like that. And we mentioned him every episode again, but... Andrew Frankel did a, did a good piece where he sort of talked about real life versus the film and so on. Yeah, I, I really was inspired to do that. I haven't done it. I got sidetracked by uh, attending a screening of Apex Secret Race Across America again at a friend's house on a massive 4K projection screen oh. with a bunch of like-minded petrol heads. And uh, I, that, I must admit, we reviewed this a few episodes ago off of a screener copy that we were very kindly provided uh, by the production. I must admit, when you watch the final version, you know, off of a on a big screen with a big sound... It looks and sounds amazing, and I, I enjoyed it more the second time around. And so rather than me going and looking at facts about Carol Shelby, which I meant to do, and I meant to reread Go Like Hell, the book it was kind of initially based on, and a bunch of other stuff around uh, the Le Mans 66 race, I've actually gone back and reread Alex Roy's The Driver book instead. <laughs> 
right. and from that I've gone and watched Gumball movies and and so on. So I went the other way. But I would say for everybody that uh, we you know we we reviewed Apex: The Secret Race Across America um, a few episodes ago, and we said it's great and you should watch it when it comes out. Well, it's out now, and you should watch it on a big TV, preferably with a bunch of petrol-headed mates, and you can discuss whether or not you think it's a good idea to do that kind of thing these days or you can do what we did which is start planning how we could do that kind of thing these days <laughs> and when we all left at the end of the night there were plenty of texts flying back to our whatsapp group with our average speeds on the journey home <laughs> i did not do very well on that one because it was really foggy by the time i left but uh, the highest speed was in the 90s wow that's impressive and only one spotter plane as well oh no spotter planes unfortunately but yes uh, we, I, I say that's a one to revisit I really thoroughly enjoyed watching that again excellent excellent speaking of other things we did over Christmas Top Gear had their Christmas special come out with uh, Chris Harris with Freddie Flintoff and with uh, Paddy McGuinness Paddy McGuinness thank you going through Nepal and I've got to say, I kind of, I was, I'm still a bit wary of, of the three of those, but I kind of got into it. I, I enjoyed it a lot. I did enjoy this. I think it was helped by the fact that there was a, a left field car choice. It's probably no spoiler to say that Freddie Flintoff does not choose a car that's similar to the others. <laughs> um, but most enjoyably, Paddy McGuinness chose a 106 rally. A little... Yes. Peugeot, rorty little thing which looked brilliant and made it to the end, lost its rear bumper but somehow looked even cooler for it because you could see the kind of squared <laughs> off silencer underneath and made a whole host of um, I guess slightly older Top Gear viewers all go racing to the classifiers to see if they could <laughs> find a 106 rally um, you know, a friend of ours used to have one and was reminiscing much about his ownership of it mm. and uh, yeah it, it made me want a, a 106 rally again it did not make me want a Citroen C4 I'm sorry Chris Harris you keep <laughs> pushing this nasty French crap on us and it's just not going to fly I, uh, all right, I probably have no soul, but I don't care about some rotten French thing that doesn't even have enough power to get up a moderate hill. <laughs> and I do think that the chemistry between the three of them is is really established now. And I th it's actually more... In I, f I found it a lot more enjoyable than the Top Gear, pres uh, Top Gear Grand Tour present Seaman which we gave a somewhat less than glowing review of. Yeah, I, I, we, we weren't that keen on that. I enjoyed this more. It's still not up there with the best of Top Gear specials, but it was very watchable, as always, with that lot. And we say it every Absolutely. time, beautifully filmed. And yeah, there's a, good, there's a good sense of camaraderie and some really wonderful, witty, off-the-cuff, um, particularly from Chris Harris, shouting nerdy things like, he's driven the XSI, <laughs> now he wants to try the 106 rally. <laughs> Which has to have come from his, you know, immediately off the cuff from his encyclopedic mm. knowledge of old French hatchbacks. Chris is really finding an, a good niche in that trio as well, because I thought it was going to be the two northerners and Chris Harris as the, the kind of the nerdy car expert. But actually, I think his wit and his writing ability is really coming to the fore. And... He couldn't be swapped out with 
a another car nerd at this point. I think the three of them actually work quite well together because he is as much a part of the group. And I think he brings a slightly different dynamic because he's not that sort of slightly comedy northerner. And I say this as somebody who lives in technically the north. It's just a really nice contrast. And I think he can really find that balance now where he can be nerdy and he can be technical but he can still be sort of entertaining. He can still be general. Yeah, he's really the, his chops in terms of presenting in an engaging manner on screen when it's not a nerdy car film. I think of Come On in Leaps and Bounds, and yeah, they do bounce off one another really well, and they give as much as they've got. And I think for me, always the greatest surprise is the fact that the other two have any car knowledge at all. <laughs> I'm always surprised when one of them reveals a love of you know when Paddy McGuinness in the last series said he loved the old Mark IV Supra. Mm. And you get really? Are you sure? You haven't just been handed a note from the production assistant <laughs> that says, "Say this." I, I think we're we're rapidly going into the high fidelity, un, unappreciated scholars bit. We can probably skip past this. Um, other things we found on TV and online across the Christmas period. I excitedly texted Chris about a Formula Two documentary that I found online. Uh, I think. Will Buxton may have tweeted this Mm. out and I was at my parents-in-law's house and I grabbed my iPad and immediately went to see if I could log into the F1 thing and try and watch this. And it covers the 2019 season, six episodes in all. And I will admit, I skipped straight to episode four uh, because episode four covers a really, really dark weekend in motorsport in general, particularly single-seaters and especially F2. It was the race at Spa where racer Antoine Hubert was tragically killed in a vicious, horrible accident just at the top of Radion. And there's a degree of morbid curiosity in wondering how they were going to handle this because it's the single defining moment of that season. Mm. I don't think anyone is going to remember that Nick DeVries finally won the F2 series in 2019. (laughs) They're going to remember that race at Spa Mm. where Juan Manuel Correa put himself in a hospital in a coma for however many weeks and sadly Anton Hubert died and it's the first death in F2. It's It happened while F1 drivers were being interviewed and they Mm. saw it. And man, I mean, this episode treats it with such respect. It is a beautiful piece of filmmaking. It's... It shows you enough. I was very cautious about watching it, thinking they'd just show you a long lens shot and then they'd cut to everyone's reactions. But they do give you a little bit more context. They give you the reactions of the entire F1 paddock and F2 Mm. paddock. The whole circus after this happened, you see the reaction of Antoine Hubert's family, which is utterly heartbreaking. And I I was definitely starting to shed a tear or two watching their reactions you can't help but feel for them Mm. and it's an it's a brilliant episode the problem is i then rushed off and texted chris saying this is unbelievable you've got to watch this and he (laughs) did and apparently all of the other episodes are a bit cack (laughs) um that's that's one way of putting it um so to start off with i don't have a subscription to the f1 timing app 
I don't have a subscription or didn't have a subscription to any of their online content and F1 TV is limited in the UK anyway thanks to their deal with Sky so I had to actually pay for this as well as their other content and I started with episode one and it was a really odd experience because you it was something that I, I dip into Formula 2 throughout the year I, I kind of know who two or three of the drivers are and that's about it. Like I tend to watch the highlights when somebody does something exciting. But what they were trying to do was really create their own version of Drive to Survive. They were trying to do a bit of the behind the scenes, who the people were, what their race histories were, um, give people their episode or if they'd had a particularly good race or where the title championship was going, that sort of thing. And... What really struck me was it would be a great promotional tool to put on YouTube for free. The fact that I had to pay to watch it as not even an F2 fan, as someone who would watch it occasionally, it left me quite cold. And I think the reason is that F2 is by its nature transitory. The drivers are just passing through on their way to Formula One. They don't The have good ones anyway. The good ones anyway. And even the teams, because it's a spec series because they're all running the same stuff there aren't that many kind of behind the scenes stories or certainly the the production when it didn't have a clear narrative was trying to dance between a bit of a race recap and a behind the scenes thing about the driver but they obviously hadn't got the budget of drive to survive so they couldn't go you know all over the world filming them behind the scenes there was a bit of nick devry on a boat and that was kind of about the end of it. And it's just struck me as, as a real missed opportunity to put the series in front of people who had never seen it before or had very occasionally watched it and just introduced them to some of those people. The other problem with that is that when we get to the 2020 Formula 2 season, some of those people won't be there and there'll be new people come in who might be brilliant or they might be rubbish and it's a very good point about it being a transitional series you do see some people sticking around but they're usually journeyman drivers who are going to do three or four years and if they don't progress they just drop out or disappear to Mm. lesser forms of motorsport and if you're any good you're up into f1 anyway Mm. um a great season to cover would have been 2018 because you had three standout drivers fighting for the title, all of whom then progressed into F1 and had pretty standout 2019 seasons. Mm. And so they're stuck with a more or less anonymous grid of drivers who haven't quite cut the mustard, who have, in Nick DeVries' case, been dropped by their backer, McLaren, and are basically making time until they go and do Formula E. And if you watch... Drive to Survive straight afterwards, as I did, you realise not only is the production value a lot higher, not only, I think, are there more stories in the Formula 1 paddock because there is more going on, but you also realise that the drivers are more rounded, they're more relaxed. You know, Daniel Ricciardo is, what, now eight years into Formula 1? Lewis Hamilton's up at, what? um, 12? Yeah, so they have More? they have a character and but they have an ease that they can talk about themselves they can take the mickey out of themselves they can they do interesting things because they are formula 1 drivers and because they do interesting things 
it's then easy to film them doing something interesting and have it be interesting. Whereas someone who has thought about nothing else other than getting to Formula One since they were knee-high to a grasshopper and is still trying to get to Formula One. They're just going to toe the corporate line. They're going to trot out the same platitude phrases no matter what happens. And to be fair, I'm sure there's a degree of stress and single-minded focus on the goal because they haven't got there yet Mm. and they know that the time is limited and rare are the drivers who get into F1. Last year was a rarity in that three drivers from F2 all stepped up to F1 and were all good drivers. Mm. It's rare that that happens now. Um, We've got one coming from the 2019. um, Nicholas Latifi is going to Williams. But I have a feeling that is not entirely due to his skill. It is in some part due to the fact that he has an extraordinarily wealthy father who has either paid Williams some money or bought shares in Williams. Um, Or both. Or both, yeah. So he's not getting there strictly on the nature of his talent. He's not the 2019 F2 champion, for example. So there's an interesting thing there. Anyway, we've gone on out of this a long time. <laughs> what, what, if you do have an F1 TV account for whatever reason, I just happened to try my live timing account because I pay for the live timing app and it worked. And I went, woohoo, and watch this. I didn't have to pay anything, but I do pay for live timing because I find it really helps me watch the race. And you can kind of keep an eye on drivers who aren't necessarily being shown mm. on the TV. Cough, Carlos Sainz. <laughs> And if you do have access, go and watch episode four. I think... Yeah, don't watch any of the others. Just watch episode four. It's a great piece of of filmmaking. As as you said, they don't shy away from what happened, but they treat it sensitively. That's really good. Unless you have about three hours spare in your life, I wouldn't worry too much about the other bits. One other F1 documentary that... I say F1 documentary, motorsport documentary, that we talked about early in our run and then it kind of vanished off the radar is Heroes the uh, Manish Pandey film where well that's the one with Mika Hakkinen and Michelle Mouton and the Le Mans Mr Le Mans Tom Christensen Tom Christensen all sit down and have dinner I think possibly Jean Todd as well all sit down and have dinner Um, they filmed it it was supposed to be out around the British Grand Prix last year and there's been a few screenings of it. There was one at the RAC Club uh, that um, people attended and, and gave very good reviews of the film. It's due out, apparently, on January the 16th on Motorsport TV. So whether that means if you've got an, an Autosport subscription, you'll see it. We'll find out on... Yeah, I'm not sure if I've got access to that. I think I may have signed up for Motorsport TV, or at least not paid, but got an account so Mm. that I could watch Super GT when Jensen Button was competing, because they were streaming it through their portal there. But I don't know if you still need to pay or what. Oh, we'll have to check that one out. But it it could be worth a watch. I'm a Mm. little... ambivalent about this one but one or other of us will give it a watch and we'll let you know whether it's worth your time and or money definitely and speaking of money oh very good i i I, (laughs) as i said that i thought i've just given him the best link and you you took it uh so across the auction block uh two days ago in a brilliant display of southern american bluegrass auctioneering steve mcqueen's bullet mustang the hero car from the film was sold at 3.4 million dollars plus buyer's premium so 3.7 something million 
and there's been some interesting reaction about whether that's cheap for what it is too low i my gut was my god that's an enormous amount of money for a mustang of any sort you'd have to and because it's such a long time ago maybe it's there's a whole generation of people who grew up watching Bullet and idolising Steve McQueen who've got a ton of money now. But mm. I thought it was a lot of money because I didn't grow up idolising Steve McQueen and um, watching Bullet. I've only seen it a few times. We will cover it on the podcast at some point. But the the overwhelming reaction online was that this was really cheap, that it should have gone for loads more, mm. which I was, I was uh, I'll admit, I was a bit befuddled by. Yeah, and I actually had a look... In the last episode, we talked about Ferris Bueller's day off with the famous 250 GT California, or not as the case may be in some of those scenes where there were automatic gearboxes and the like. There is currently one of those for sale, not in any way connected to Ferris Bueller. It's just a black 250 GT California, which is up for sale. So if you have £10 million burning a hole in your pocket, you can drive one of those today. And that is... Like I say, in no way connected to Ferris Bueller other than being the same model. If you had that kind of money, I love Ferris Bueller, but if I had 10 million quid just idly to spend, there was no way I'd buy one of those cars. You'd buy half a McLaren no F1. No way. <laughs> I know I would. Oh, no, I wouldn't even do that. I like the idea of the McLaren F1, but as we'll come on to later in the podcast, my money would go on a Carrera GT and lots of other things. Many, many, many sets of tyres. Indeed. Moving on. So our theme for the show today is we've decided to move away from Hollywood and look at films in a foreign language. This is not entirely inspired by a Twitter thread over Christmas where people were talking about one of those films, which was... Taxi. This is not, I repeat, not the 2004 remake starring Queen Latifah. This is the <laughs> 1998 original uh, written by Luc Besson, he of uh, The Fifth Element and many other highly enjoyable movies. This is one of those movies that I think kind of flew under the radar for lots and lots of people. There's still, I think, a degree of petrol heads who haven't seen this or maybe only seen it once or twice. And I count myself among their number. I had this on a VHS. Kids, ask your parents what a VHS was. that I think I bought through one of those online companies that would sell you four movies for a quid and then charge you maximum price for all the others. But I watched it 15 years ago and I remember enjoying it. And then Chris suggested, hey, you know what, we should do foreign languages and and you should do taxi. And I thought, great, I haven't seen that for ages. I'd love to rewatch that. I remember it being really good. And I rewatched it very recently, like on the way home from work on the train. I finished (laughs) rewatching it. And... I have to admit, I was a little underwhelmed. I will admit to, in some of the more tedious dialogue scenes, even resorting to the button that skips it on 15 seconds. (laughs) So let me step back and uh, give you a brief overview of the story of Taxi. The principal character is a pizza delivery guy called Daniel Morales, played by Sami Nasseri. I'm going to butcher these French names. I'm really sorry um, if you are French or you speak French or you know these people, or in fact you are Sami Nasseri. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I'm terrible at French pronunciation. He's a very talented driver who has a pizza delivery round that he, at the start of the movie, resigns to become a taxi driver, which is the thing he's always wanted to do. He has a white 1997 Peugeot 406, nothing particularly special about it so far. It's not an MI16 
Um, well, that's the 406, isn't it? He's got a f- mm. 406 MI16? Yeah, there was an MI, MI16. There was an MI16. So he does not have that. He just has a like a completely blank white, like a, a body in white almost car. It actually looks really motorsport cool because it's so white. <laughs> um, that's his car that he's going to drive around uh, and be a taxi driver in, but he can't resist having not having a modified one. So he's got uh, what looked like a bunch of switches that would switch nitrous on. He's got... Um, air jacks that will jack the car up by itself he has automatically deploying aero that deploys a splitter on the front and a spoiler on the rear that's very questionable (laughs) it looks cool but it isn't i i think when it goes up on the air jacks and it deploys all of its aero it even moves the wheels out about 20 mil as well on the axle yes it does yes it does you're right i mean it's it's total nonsense but it's super cool to watch it really is um so we have him, he's he's quit his pizza job to become a taxi driver and he bumps into a young, slightly bumbling police inspector called Emilia who lives with his mother and cannot pass his driving test to save his life. He's not taken seriously at work. His boss thinks he's an idiot and he ends up taking a taxi ride with Danielle. Daniel doesn't know that he's a police officer and so he drives like an absolute maniac, breaks loads of laws and then ends up being detained by Emilien who says, you know what, I'm going to kind of semi-blackmail you into helping me with this investigation. <laughs> they are trying to catch a gang of German thieves who keep hitting banks in and around Marseille where this is set. Uh, they are known as the Mercedes gang. Ooh. And they are super comedy Germans. They are, you know, square jaw, blonde hair, cropped. They all stri- They all remind me, really, really remind me of Flea's character in Back to the Future 2. Oh, yes! That really slightly crazed look. They all have that. Um, anyway, so Emilion, the policeman, is trying to catch these thieves and he ends up kind of semi-blackmailing Daniel, the taxi driver, into helping him. There's a whole bunch of very questionable scenes in this. There's a truly amazing and yet terrible shootout where they're trying to corner the Mercedes thieves, the Mercedes gang, uh, and it kind of erupts into a massive shootout. I didn't realise that all French police were armed with revolvers and glocks and semi-automatic machine guns, but apparently they are. Um, (laughs) And everyone just goes completely nuts. The baddies are shooting, the goodies are shooting at one another, and it goes on for about five minutes of just all-out warfare, except this is A-team violence, where not a (laughs) single bullet hits its target. It hits cars, cars are smashed into other cars, punctures. No one gets shot. No one even gets clipped. They're all stormtroopers. They're all stormtroopers. They can't hit to say, you know, they can't hit anything to save their lives. It's really odd. It's looking like it wants to be heat, but it can't be heat. It's like a piss take of heat almost. Um, but it, it it kind of jars a little because you realise that there's just all this gunfire going off and none of it's hitting anything and it all seems largely pointless. The problem I have with this movie is that the car stuff is amazingly shot. It's It's really kind of raw and it's all live action there's obviously been some amazing stunt driving there's some stunts that you think god you you are a fraction of an inch from having your car squashed between two trains there's there's really brutal scenes of of cars being destroyed they got through a hundred cars in in filming okay these are all old french snotters so they're all worth about (laughs) at the time 10 or 11 francs (laughs) 
But kids, ask your parents. <laughs> but the way it's shot, I mean, it owes the, the 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 car chase scenes where Daniel's driving his white four hundred six around. I'll say, oh, so much to say a tower on rendezvous. I've butchered that again. Sorry, people who told me how to pronounce it. I have forgotten immediately. But it, it's that same camera mounted low on the front of the car. Uh, or in this case, there's an awful lot of shots where the camera is mounted low on a tracking car that's in front of the car, the, the Peugeot or the Mercedes that are chasing it. And they're just driving and this beautiful precision work from the driving team of just dodging around and the cars are slightly older than we're kind of used to. So they're under load, they're rolling. I mean, Daniel's cars on what sound, what look like um, touring car alloys and it's, it's got a lot of negative camber. So it looks really cool. He's got an amazing removable steering wheel that seems somehow can be removed while he's driving along. So he can unplug the Peugeot one and plug on like a Momo steering oh wheel God, for when yes. he's racing. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Um, which is not something that is advised to be done while you're driving along, but uh, apparently it is possible and he does it. Interestingly, I noticed as it gets towards the end, he actually has a balsa wood gear knob in tribute to the old Porsche 917 of Le Mans fame back in the 70s, which is quite cool, and what looks like a, a, a precursor to the kind of hydraulic fly-off handbrake. I also really enjoyed the fact that they didn't try and make his car you know, super performance by, oh, it's a Peugeot 406, but the production crew just slammed a crate V8 in there and made it rear-wheel drive. It is unabashedly front-wheel drive. He spins the front wheels. There's really any drifting in this. It's just high-speed stuff. And he says, oh, I've got this you know, super powerful V6. It sounds and really reminds me of the Williams-Renault Megane from the Super Touring era. The sound of no, it no, is... The Laguna. Laguna, sorry, not the Megane. Yes, um, from the Super Touring era. It sounds like that V6. And it, it's not. And it's apparently, it's very hard to find things out about this production because it was a French movie in French and they didn't do a great deal of behind the scenes. There's just very little out there to, to kind of figure out what was going on with these cars. So yes, they had bucket seats and harnesses for when they're doing stunt stuff, but they didn't do the kind of current Fast and Furious stick a crate V8 in it, soup it up, big brakes, decent suspension and and make the car actually work like the film shows it working. <laughs> it is, I think, pretty much just a Bogo 406 with a PSA V6 in it that does about 126 horsepower. But they kind of cover for that with clever angles and um, you know good sound editing over the top so it sounds like a race car. And it's really hard to find out any more details about it other than, you know, they've, they've done some dubbing over the top. It's been a very... Uh, I've dived down old Peugeot forums, which have a love-hate relationship with this movie. There's loads and loads of posts where they're like, I can't believe they riced up a perfectly good 406. <laughs> Uh, um, and a few people saying, oh, but I loved this kid, this film when I was a kid. It made me want to go and do that to my 406. And I must admit, at the time, I thought that car looked a bit chavvy and crap, but I look at it now and go, damn, that looks really quite cool <laughs> in a retro way. I think it's because it's got that touring car camber and ride height. It's got mm. the colour-coded wheel, centre-lock wheel nuts, so you can see it's blue on the left and red on the right, or which the other way around, whichever it is. Um it just looks cool and it is filmmaking much like Ronin where it's all done in camera. There's no Fast and Furious CGI. Mm. There's no weirdness going on. There is some extraordinarily questionable physics at the end. <laughs> 
I'm trying to remember now. There is a jump. I'm going to go into spoilers because this is the only way I can do it. They, the bank robbers are finally trapped there with a tracking device that they shoot onto the, the boot, boot lid of the car and the robbers being clearly, no, I don't know, um, not of huge intelligence. Is that fair to say? I'm trying to think of a yeah. funnier way to put that, but they don't notice that there is a, a, a green LED device stuck to their boot lid <laughs> that is flashing and making a beep. noise which is one of those movie cliches that i really loathe quite along with our oft-sighted oh i need to go faster i will put my foot down a bit harder or i will change down (laughs) this is one movie that does not do that but it does have that stupid tracking device making a beeping noise interestingly the way they get away with um not being caught is they have these red mercedes that then they spray in a truck and they spray them silver in quick 10 minute drying paint and they reverse them out the truck and they drive off sensibly in their now silver Mercedes. Mm. While they're respraying it, they do not notice that there is a tracking device, even though it's on the boot lid <laughs> and that they're spraying and it's still there with a the yellow lady going beep, beep. <laughs> Don't know how that works. Anyway, somehow Daniel manages to provoke uh, the, the German Mercedes gang into chasing him in a race, even though they've just pulled off the last bank job they need in order to retire and go and sit on a beach and earn 20%. Yet somehow this kid in a white Peugeot provokes them into chasing him. And the chase takes them all the way through the streets of Marseille, bizarrely down onto the docks, and then bizarrely they're not on the docks anymore, they are back on the streets (laughs) heading towards the airport. And then there's, bizarrely, they're on the set from Speed, where they're going along a disused road, sorry, not a disused (laughs) road, a road that hasn't been finished yet. And at the last minute, he breaks, and the two Mercedes cars go side by side him and jump onto a section of roadway that has not been finished yet, where they are stuck and caught. Ah, yes. Do you remember that? Yep, yeah, yeah. And all the time I was watching it, I was thinking, I mean, this is great filming, it's really cool, but how on earth... Did this seem like a good idea to the scriptwriter? Why on earth? They've they've won. They have got away with it. They don't need to chase this idiot in his 406. They could just drive slowly down the auto route and disappear off to Nice or Antibes, sit on the beach, earn their 20%, which, you know, Alan Rickman told us it's possible. So that's what happens if you're a bank robber. Um, why on earth are they chasing this idiot? And they get more and more into it. And I just... I sat there going, you you fools, you've won. You have all the money in the boot of your questionably not really a Mercedes 190 Evolution. <laughs> I think they're five, they're meant to, they're actually bog standard W124 series Mercedes 190s meant to look like the 500E. I think it's just a wheels and, and uh, um, wheels and spoiler thing. They actually look like stock cruddy taxi Mercedes, which, you know, kind of appropriate for the title of the movie. Makes sense. I enjoyed watching this for the driving scenes, all the plot stuff, all of the stuff where Daniel's meeting Emilion and you're meeting Emilion in his police station where he's just a laughing stock and I've no idea how he's even employed, all the stuff where you meet Emilion's mother, even the stuff with Daniel's girlfriend who is played by a young Marion Cotillard. Oh. And she's great in it for what she gets to do, but she gets to do very, very little. It's just, it drags and it goes on and on and on. And it's got nothing to do with the fact that it's in a foreign language because you watch it with subtitles and it's it's fine. It just, it's really, I think it's meant to be funny, but maybe some of the jokes don't land. It just plods until 
he gets in a car and there's car action, at which point it picks up and it is, it's like someone's flipped a switch and you're going, oh God, this is fantastic. Keep it going, keep it going. And then, you know, they stop to stake out something and there's a really, <laughs> really terrible attempt at banter that just falls flat. Mm. I really struggled with it, which is why I was kind of hitting that fast forward in the, in the, in some of the dialogue scenes because it was just dragging on and on. You could probably cut this down from its running time of 86 minutes, which is pretty short for a movie you could get this down to a tight 75 without trying it's supposed to be the old couple isn't it it's supposed to be the the dragnet or the mismatched buddy comedy the americans are so much better at this than the french and i i like a lot of luc besson's movies and this uh, the odd couple thing might work. Both of the actors have a degree of, of charisma and on-screen presence, but it just they're just stuck with a terrible script. And it feels flabby. It feels like if you punched it up a bit and you cut some of the silences out and you, you made it a bit more propulsive, mm. it would be better. Um, this spawned a series of, I think, five films in total. Blimey. Ta- Taxi 2, I think, might be the only one that has the original cast, some of the original cast returning, and then there's a few more that were more straight to video. But this has been a huge success for French cinema. These have made over $300 million on a tiny budget. This one was made for $8.7 million. Wow. And brought back, just this movie alone, brought $44.5 million back. So it's a huge return for very little outlay. Mm. It was only shot in 30 days. No CG probably barely any post-production it's i mean it's been a huge success for french cinema and they are very memorable movies that car in fact some of the replicas of those cars made for the sequel were actually on sale in their stock 406 four doors but Mm. they are done up to look the part and if you were so minded you could have bought one and then actually done some mechanical work (laughs) to it to make it cooler but they were selling in around the sort of 11 to 12 thousand dollar mark wow a a few years ago so i think they're probably not along the lines of the Steve McQueen bullet <laughs> car, of course, but perhaps to a certain generation of French car fans, they uh, they're cool and possibly a little bit collectible. Um, we know a, a, pe- a person or two who are fans of um, French tat. French tat, yes. Oh, I did. Speaking of 106 rallies, there's a scene in this where some inept thieves are trying to break into a 106 rally, uh, a black one, while a police stakeout to catch the Mercedes gang is going on, and they're at it with a screwdriver and they're kind of pulling the door lock out of the uh. door and I was heartbroken to see all the scratches around the door it's horrible <laughs> our OCD host has spoken <laughs> yeah I was, I was looking like oh, and they refer to it as some kind of crate car the police chief keeps calling it a crate I'm thinking what are you talking about it's a 106 rally shut your face <laughs> one of the other things I found really weird about this is there's some very strange racial stereotyping going on with, with the, their attitude towards the French the police chief uses extraordinarily derogatory words to refer to Germans and the Asians um, it just must be a generational thing time of the year not sure it was very weird to see that kind of thing but uh, It's worth revisiting this, but if you haven't seen it in a while, I would hover over the fast-forward button for some of the dialogue scenes. The the action is brilliant. It's joyous to see kind of clear, 
open long shots in daylight with no CG and just great stunt work. I that's that's my takeaway from this movie, and I'd watch it again for those because it's a tribute to the people who put it together and made those scenes work. But the actual film as a whole just plods a bit. Fair enough. I, I, I have to be honest. When I suggested it, I've had a DVD sitting on my shelf. I saw it when it came out at the cinema in 1999, I think. Bought the DVD shortly after, and then I don't think I've ever watched it since. So given that, I'm quite keen now to go back and watch it again and on a nice big screen as well. It's worth revisiting. Like I say, enjoy the chase scenes. And actually, if you do it, report back on whichever <laughs> pod we do after that. And just let me know if you if you had the same reaction to me or the kind of dialogue stuff of going, come on, get to the next car chase. <laughs> I will, I will. And for my film, uh, in inverted commas, for reasons I will come on to in a second, I've gone to the other side of the world with initial D which will mean something to some of you and will probably mean not a lot to a lot of you. Initial D is a manga series that started in Japan in 1995 and has spawned a whole raft of properties. I think this is probably the first animated series we're going to talk about on this show. It is a series as well, and I'm not going to talk about the whole thing for reasons that will become very, very obvious very, very quickly. I said Initial D initially because, one, it was one of the few foreign language films that came to mind, and two, I have a copy of a live-action version that they did in 2005, a Chinese film, which came out about the same time that the manga was available in the UK, and I was actually reading it purely coincidentally and I saw there's a film and I've, I, I bought it and watched it and then put that back on the shelf as well but this is a bit like saying I'm going to review Star Wars because Initial D ran from 1995 to 2013 it spawned 48 manga books 8 TV series 1 live action movie 2 musicals 3 f- hell 3 feature length <laughs> animated remakes and 21 video games across different platforms and a card game so I'm not going to review everything. What I will talk about is what was later referred to as stage one. So if you watch the film, if you watch the first of the remakes, if you watch um, what they call stage one, which was the first series, the animated series, or the first couple of the manga books, the story is basically the same. And in fact... Prior to watching this, I actually reached out to uh, Al Clark, the filmmaker whose work we've talked about on this podcast before, who is an A86 owner and drifter of much skill, and kind of got his load down. It's like, where should I be looking in all of this? And I've basically now seen the same thing about four times. So the story is Takumi Fujiwara is a tofu delivery driver who races through the mountains of Mount Akina, which is a fictional name for the uh, range of mountains where the Tuge roads are. And his dad makes tofu, sells it in his shop, and Takumi is out at night delivering the tofu, and he just wants to get home as quickly as possible. Tofu, if you've never seen it in real life, um, it's kind of like a... It's made from soybeans. It kind of has a consistency, something around sort of like creme caramel or fromage frais or something like that. And you buy it in blocks and it's very fragile. 
So what his dad did, so that he didn't drive recklessly and break the tofu, was he put a cup of water in the cup holder of their AE86, and off he went into the hills delivering tofu. And he mustn't spill the water. That's his thing. It's like Jackie Stewart, but in Japan. And while he's out delivering tofu, he's gone faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And he's become supernaturally fast and gifted to the point that one guy is driving through the mountain roads in his RX-7 and this little 1.6 litre Toyota Corolla goes blasting past. And he, in this uh, lovely sort of very Japanese movie moment, is just like, you know, who was that? He can't have been real. This must have been a ghost of the mountain. I will find him and I will quest and I will do all this sort of stuff. Alongside that, Takumi is at school. He's got this quite a slightly annoying friend called uh, Itsuki who dreams of cars and he talks about cars he's got car magazines he wants to go and buy cars and they both work in a gas station and one of the other guys who works at the gas station is in a racing team called the Akina Speed Stars and they are going up into the mountains and they're racing and it's all about cars and it's all about going up and drifting and driving fast and doing time attack and all this sort of stuff Takumi outside of his delivery job has almost no interest in cars he has no idea of his skills he wants to go and get a girlfriend and uh, get a job in the summer and take her off to the beach all this sort of stuff and word gets out of his skills and there's a rival group called the red sons who drive rx7s they come to Mount Akina. They challenge the Akina Speed Stars to a race, and uh, Takumi's convinced to come and join them and show his skills up the mountain and down the mountain and time attack and drifting and all this sort of stuff. It's a very, very Japanese story because in all the versions that I've seen, there's always this thing of the reluctant hero. He doesn't know how good he is. He has no interest in cars. He's just been doing his thing up in the mountains and getting extraordinarily good. His dad is a old uh, racing driver who gave it all up to, I think, make tofu and smoke, mostly. Um, and he just sort of wants to, to do his thing, but his friends are like, no, you must come and race. And there's some brilliant moments where there's people sort of up in the hills going, ah, look at him, he is at one with his machine. It is, he carries such speed. Surely this is, you know, of the gods and all this sort of stuff. It's a, a very 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 well put together car franchise and i think for for one very good reason and that is the ae86 wasn't chosen by mistake all the cars in it and particularly in the manga i remember it being completely unabashedly car nerdy so when it runs through the cars it's like the, you know these two brothers they both drive rx7s this one's an fc this one's an fd this is an R32 Skyline. It's got this engine, it's got this exhaust, it's got this much power, it's got all this sort of stuff. And also, it's before the Fast and the Furious kind of extravagant uh, D1 series side of things sort of came along. So all the cars look completely standard. There's no spinning chrome no and chrome, you know, no neon, neon lights underneath, no, no flamey stickers and no. stuff. And- None of that. None of that. The cars are completely standard, externally at least. So when they started putting this together, they got in touch with a guy called Keiji Suchia, who goes by the nickname of Drift King. All you Tokyo Drift nerds are going, hang on, 
Yes. Yeah. It's that Drift King. The original Drift King. The original. So he made a video, a VHS back in 87, of him drifting his AE86 around the two gay roads up in the mountains of Japan. He was a consultant on Initial D. He was a consultant, had a cameo in uh, Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. So, you know, when they're doing the rocky montage of drifting and there's the two fishermen sat by the side of the dock. Oh, is that them? One of those, the guy in the blue shirt, that's uh, Kichi. That's fantastic. I did not know that. And that makes that even better for me now. (laughs) And the A86, it's a really interesting car because it's basically the Toyota Corolla. It's a variant of the Toyota Corolla, maybe between 83 and 87. Front wheel drive, sorry, front engine, rear wheel drive, weighs under a tonne, 1.6 litre engine, low weight, low grip, low power. And it ended up getting actually surprisingly a lot of success. It did a lot of rallying. It did a lot of circuit racing. Even came to Europe and did the European Touring Car Series with, in its class, was, uh, did very, very well once. I think it won the championship. Um, it's known as the Hachiroku, which literally translates as the 8-6. And the thing that I think Initial D has really done for it is the colour scheme. So... If you ever see an A86 referenced, you will often see the what what they keep referring to as the panda paint scheme. So it's white on top, black at the bottom, white stripe, and the kanji down the side that says Fujiwara Tofu, brackets private for tax reasons. And in fact, it was actually the it was when the GT86 came along. The 86 again refers to the Hachiroku, one of the cars that Toyota GB put together to bring this to life. They did a really good series actually, where um, they modified a GT86 to turn it into this tofu wagon. They got custom wheels done. They did the graphics on the side. They did the lights. And then they got a British manga artist to kind of take photos of the car and put it into manga scenes. And it was a really great homage. And honestly, if I if my numbers come up tonight, I'm buying a GT86 and I'm doing that exact same colour scheme. In fact, if anybody from Toyota GB is listening, it's my 40th birthday soon. If you'd like to lend me that car, I would be very much appreciated. So, yeah, I think Initial D, because it pushed the A86 sort of really front and centre, has taken what is an iconic car already and turned it into a legend it is the e30 it is the sierra rs500 you know it really is that sort of quintessential moment in time which toyota had then largely moved away from even counting the sort of toyota corollas of carlos Sainz senior and lewis moyer and and things like that which didn't really have much of a relation to the drift scene in japan at all. I don't think there's ever a scene in Initial D where everyone throws a helmet through a back window. Probably more to I'd love that, though. There's a niche reference for people who <laughs> haven't seen that. If you haven't seen that, go and look at the, it's the last round of the 1993? Rally GB, yeah. I can't remember which year it was, but yeah, last last <laughs> round of the Rally GB. Go and just Google it. It's it's awful because yeah. it means that Tommy Mack wins a race, uh, a championship that I'm not sure he should have rightly won. <laughs> but uh, yes. <laughs> um, one interesting thing that going back and watching this, and I've actually, like I say, I've watched this sort of various times in various series. If you can get the manga, there was a company called Tokyo Pop who did an English translation. If you ever fancy trying manga, this is actually a really good one to start with. There's a few translation errors 
and it gets a bit weird in places. Um, but it's a really sort of compelling story if you like the car side and the kind of the teen love story that kind of gets woven in there as well. The Chinese live-action film, I was told to avoid it, and I think that's right. It's not the best film, but the driving scenes are are good. I don't really think the rest of the film kind of makes up for it. What I was really sort of led towards, and the two that I ended up comparing, so one was the uh, first series of the, the TV show. They call each one stage, one, so is it like stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four. And up until recently, you've only been able to get them on import DVDs from Japan or from America, and it's been quite pricey. But in researching this, I found that Amazon Prime have the uh, the remake films as part of the Amazon Prime service, and I'll get onto those in a second. They also have a deal with a company called Funmation, who license a lot of Japanese anime. So for like four ninety nine a month, and you can get a week's free trial, you can actually watch a lot of these series on um, through that through Amazon Prime through that service. I went back and I watched the first series, and I've got to say it's the adaptation of it that I've enjoyed absolutely the most. It is colourful, it's exciting, it's lively. That's. I watched the dubbed version. There is a subtitled version, if you'd rather. And it's really good fun. It's really lively. There is computer animation in some of it, which is quite ropey. Um, you know, it's 1995, but not Toy Story 1995. It's it's kind of a bit like somebody's got an Amiga and they've they've done a bit of drifting cars. But the stuff that's all hand drawn is brilliant, and I, I love it. It's got this really odd Eurobeat intro theme song and I have to read you some of the lyrics just because the translation is uh, so picture the scene if you will opening of a cartoon it's a montage of characters and cars and things moving and stuff like that and credits and then you get stuff and you're like you're reading the subtitles underneath because some of the lines are in English but most of them are in Japanese and there's things like one-way ticket to your soul. Let's go. Keep pushing and looking for your goal. Feel together the times you love each other. Let's all look at sorts of dramas. So many things we want to try. Hiding at the bottom of a pop song. Deep style. Five billion wishes. Swirling world. Surely it's going to reach someone. Your light. I, I, it's probably one of the moments I've watched the most trying to actually work out what on earth they're talking about. This is the whole thing, though. The TV show, it's from the mid-90s. It's the transfer isn't brilliant it's not cleaned up it's not stabilized or anything like that it's a bit shaky in places but it's the most fun it has the most life to it it has the most charisma to it and it's kind of short enough and i think that anybody who's used to watching cartoon series from when they were young would immediately sort of get into it and it has a kind of a quiet in places that you don't get with things like the Fast and the Furious. The the main character is very reserved. He's outside of the world. He's It's not an expositional thing like uh, Lucas Black in Tokyo Drift. He's withdrawn. He's reluctant. The girls in it are very stereotypical anime. But it's so cool. It's the way that it's animated, the way that they've understood the car movement, the way that they have, for want of a better expression, you know, the camera angles that they use are really, really cool. And I 
enjoyed it probably the most in any format that first series initial d stage one if you want to go into it in more detail you can if you want to understand the differences between them there are myriad uh, pages on the internet where people talk about the differences between different sorts of manga but the funny thing is that I, I said at the start it was like reviewing star wars and in a way stage one and i think stage two do have that slightly the you know the unknowing hero the father figure having to encourage them and push them on discovering their calling discovering their passion it's really really worth a watch get a, a week's trial to Funimation on if you're an amazon prime subscriber in the uk watch stage one watch the dubbed version because i think that's slightly easier to to follow and the translation's very very good and yeah if you've never watched any anime before or you've watched very little you will fall into it straight away i really enjoyed it and i've got to say when i went into this i thought there's no way i'm watching eight series eight series of a tv show for for this podcast but you know what you're watching a series of a tv show (laughs) i really want to watch this now i have an amazon prime subscription so can i see stage one on there without having to pay anything extra if you go to the amazon website and set up a funmation subscription so find initial d stage one it'll say take out a rental for funmation accept that go and give it a watch I will do that. I have I have never really got into the world of Initial D because it seemed so impenetrably complicated and I didn't really understand anything about it other than the fact that there was an AE86 that went sideways. <laughs> so I, I kind of feel like I do want to go and, and check this out. And this is in no way inspired by the fact that I've seen Al Clark drifting his AE86 on many Instagram and Twitter (laughs) video posts and gone, damn, that looks cool. It is. And on a slight tangent as well, if you are as an Amazon Prime subscriber, there is going to be so much Japan content across everything in the run-up to the Olympics. But James May has done a series where he's travelling around Japan. If you've ever wanted to kind of get a bit of a flavour of Japan and you like his kind of slightly not sarcastic but slightly quirky and offbeat style give it a watch it's it's really entertaining it's not in any way that sort of here's shibuya crossing here's a bullet train here's sushi and things like that it's a good watch i i highly recommend it yeah i've, I've started watching some of this over the christmas period and it, it tries to give you a slightly different look at Japan that isn't just the cliches from a Western point of view. So I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I, I do enjoy James May's standalone programmes. Shall we move on to... Our first YouTube pick of 2020. And you you mentioned this earlier in passing. You, I did. You've gone with... I've gone with Harry's Garage doing the Porsche Carrera GT, which popped up in my subscriptions, I think, this morning or yes, last night is this morning and i watched it quite early this morning while i was having my breakfast and finished watching it when i got to work and it is just mega i don't always enjoy everything that harry's garage does but this is a real treat if you haven't watched anything from harry's garage harry is harry metcalf founder of evo a uh, famous farmer supercar owner <laughs> car collector famous um, farmer <laughs> how many other farmers can you name that's J- Jeremy Clarkson. Well, now, yes, of course, but wasn't... Well, yes, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'm sure you will know who Harry Metcalf is and you will have heard of, if not watched, the Harry's Garage channel. Some of the stuff I'm less into, um, he's doing a rebuild on one of his Lamborghinis 
uh, classic Lamborghini uh, that I haven't really got into, but I've really enjoyed it when he's bringing these kind of like guest cars that are not part of his collection, but he's reviewing them because they're interesting. And mm. the Carrera GT is a really, really interesting car. Yes, it's a dream car, but it's also got some really interesting things about it. So you get to see, you know, how you take the the um, target top off and stow it away in the, yes. the tr- front trunk, which I didn't realise how it was done, but it shows you and it's really beautifully, neatly engineered in a way that's very Porsche and yet also very reminiscent of the Toyota MR2. <laughs> Which is what I always associate those kind of T-tops with. Mm-hmm. You've got glorious sound of the V10 wailing away from some exterior shots and of what it sounds like inside the car, which reminds me very much of my old Audi R8 V10 in that inside the car sounds very mechanical and chuntery and not like a Williams Renault from the early 90s, which is kind of what I expected when I had that car. I was a little disappointed that it didn't sound like that. The Porsche sounds a lot better. It's not the quintessential V10 uh, sound, I don't think. There are Mm. other V10 cars that will give you that, that howl a bit more, but it just sounds it sounds beautiful. It's really understated looking for supercars, particularly when you compare it to anything from Lamborghini across the last 20 years. The Porsche looks classic. Mm. And, you know, Harry Metcalf is is driving this car. It's for sale. It's done 2,400 miles in nearly 15 years, which is an absolute tragedy. But he's, he's out there giving the beans, driving it around, showing it off. And it's just fantastic for a car that you don't see out on the road very often. And mm. because, of course, YouTube wasn't around in 2005 to the extent that it is now, people didn't make video reviews of the Carrera GT. And so to see one done by, you know, a, a well-known reviewer and youtube star at this point yeah yeah is really enjoyable so harry's garage porsche career gt history and on-road review worth a watch and just thinking about because he does talk about some of the times that evo had the career gt in the pages for obvious reasons its contemporaries at the time were the mclaren mercedes slr and the ferrari enzo and i think the career gt has aged the most beautifully of the three of them yeah, that's fair. I do have a soft spot for the Enzo's looks, but I think the Carrera GT's mechanicals are going to age better because it's got a mm. manual gearbox. And it's really noticeable when you hear him giving it the beans and he goes right up to the red line and there is this in- enormous delay <laughs> while he changes the gears manually. Whereas, you know, you, you get very used to wailing modern high revving engines where there's wah, <laughs> immediate double clutch gearbox change that is straight back into the power band. Whereas here it's clear you have to work hard to access the performance and yes you're right it has aged the best of the three i have a soft spot for both of the other two the mclaren mercedes slr is hamstrung by crappy mercedes brakes Mm. um, that never got really resolved that was forced onto them by mercedes uh, mclaren and gordon murray in particular were not very happy about that but it has a stonking engine and i think still looks amazing even if it Mm. is a probably a bit big and the the Enzo looks like a spaceship and I love cars that look like a spaceship there is a mention of the fact that the Carrera GT has a whiff of an oversized Boxster about it and it Mm. does until you dig into the details I think the Enzo if you look at it side on the front overhang is too long compared to the rear and I think it's a very straight edged very almost boxy look it's all very 
sort of polygons and flat edges. If the if the removals men from the Money for Nothing video were to drive a supercar, they would drive an Enzo. I really like it, and I think a good portion of my current love for it is based on two things. The first of which is a drive from an Evo issue that's got to be five or six or ten years old now, I can't remember. Dickie Meaden driving one through France, and there's a shot in there of it crossed up coming out of a right-hand corner, and... It just makes the Enzo look awesomely cool in a way that none of the press drives or Ferrari's own press photography have. Secondly, is that I think yesterday or the day before, Alex Brundle posted a video of him driving an Enzo around on his home sim rig saying, <laughs> yeah, I'm training really hard for the 2020 LMS season. Meanwhile, the video is showing him happily drifting it around Barcelona. <laughs> Yes. And it looks super cool doing that. So I, I'm, I've got a lot of love for the Enzo. The somewhat dated Robo manual, single clutch, flappy paddle gearbox is what really ages that car. Mm. For my choice, if I, as if I hadn't had enough Japanese drifting action since our last episode. Please be best motoring. It's not best motoring, is it? This isn't best motoring. I've done best oh. motoring before. I will do best motoring again. Um, but this, this isn't. I've picked a documentary called Outsiders, which was filmed by Al Clark again. Basically, in 2011, some of the guys from Driftworks went out to Japan. Uh, Al Clark went along, filmed their adventures. And it's a really fun documentary actually getting inside the Japanese drifting and motoring scene. What they did once they filmed it was they came back, they released it on DVD for a few years, and then when the sales tailed off, God bless them for this, they just went, fine, stuck it on YouTube. They haven't done a follow-up, despite what the end of the video might say, but it's a really interesting niche car nerdy way to look at the Japanese scene that is very very accessible for the British if you've never been into it if you've never had any sort of involvement with it beyond the occasional YouTube video whatever really recommend it and in fact the Driftworks channel I've kind of been accidentally binging over Christmas because there is just a lot of really good content even things that aren't drifting that aren't necessarily mechanical What's Phil doing at the moment? He is building a Lamborghini GT1 replica. He built a V10 E46 M3, which you may have seen photos of. It was a black car, and they took the engine out of a uh, E60 M5. M5, yeah. That, I've, I've seen other people do that, but there's not many of them around. Mm. It's a very big engine to cram in a very small space <laughs> by comparison. Well, he did it. There's footage of, of him driving at the ring in it, um, but he sold it to somebody who, for unspecified but apparently slightly sad reasons, couldn't drive it and it was left sitting for a while. So they're actually going through a process now where they're stripping it back, seeing what the condition is, going through the start of a sort of restoration and rebuild. So if you like your drifting, if you like your Japanese cars, if you like working on European cars, all that sort of thing, give the Driftworks channel a look. It's incredibly watchable. Sounds good. I actually have a Driftworks t-shirt somewhere lying around that I got when I ordered some parts from them. So, um, yeah, I, I like the company. I only know them through having followed Al Clark's adventures and, and seeing his work through the years. But I, I do want to see that because it does sound really, really interesting. I vaguely remember hearing about this at the time, probably from you. <laughs> um, but I have never watched the documentary and 
now I have a reason to watch both it and Initial D. So I'm going to be watching it all and we'll check back in in a future pod with some thoughts. Excellent. Well, that's it for this episode. If you think we've got it right or we've got it wrong, share your thoughts and opinions with us on Twitter at AutoMoviePod, on our AutoMoviePodcast Facebook page, or email us at comments at AutoMoviePodcast.com. We're now going to get in our AE86s and drift up in the hills. We'll see you next time. Bye.